this week on Dig Me Out. Your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, it's our first roundtable of 2017. We need a sound for that, like a siren or a whoop or something. A trumpet. Well, yeah. For 2017, we should have some sort of a Blade Runner influenced <laughs> sound since it's the. Uh, mm. Yeah. Mm. Evangelist to score this for us. Do you want me to have like a an analog synth hooked up and I can just play creepy? Yeah, Mike Oldfield or something. Yeah, there you go. Get a get a, a Giorgio Moroder on the phone. <laughs> we need him to score a new uh, roundtable. All those voices you just heard are our guests, and uh, they're here to help us talk about the albums of 1997. Uh, we've got uh, our crew back from last year, regulars. Regulators, if you are a <laughs> fan of the uh, Young Guns, I guess it's not a trilogy yet. I'm still holding out hope. But uh, joining us from the balmy weather of Tallahassee, Florida, Mr. Jeff Takis. Hello. Welcome. Host of the Rocket Fuel podcast, which you can follow via rocketfuelpodcast.com. Yes. In a little bit warmer, but not too much warmer. Climate, Mr. Eric Grubbs from Mr. or from uh, Dallas, Texas. Home Hello. Of the, uh, hopefully, not the next Super Bowl champions because God knows we don't want the Dallas Cowboys oh, winning another so Super Bowl. Obnoxious. Okay, okay, yeah. We, <laughs> the Cowboys, America's had, team. The Cowboys have had an amazing season after many seasons of not being good. <laughs> so only like, because Jerry Jones has been removed from having any part of the draft or free agency. So he, he he drafted Dak Prescott. He's proud to talk about that. Mm. I think that's what his meds told him afterwards. After <laughs> after he tried to get Paxton Lynch in the first round. That's neither here nor there. We're going to talk about briefly your podcast. Do you know who you are? Yeah, which people can find out about where SoundCloud, Stitcher, as well as iTunes. Excellent. And then from the man who is currently experiencing probably the worst weather out of all of us. <laughs> oh, it's not so bad. Uh, what is it? What <laughs> negative did you reach today? Negative two, four? We got 12 whole degrees out here in degrees. Chicago. Lake. Spread yep. them around. <laughs> I was mowing the lawn and stuff. It was great. Nice. Andy Dare <laughs> of the hey Andy Dare Show at andydare.com. Welcome back, Andy. Thank you so much for having me back here. Like I said, we're going to talk about the albums of 1997. This is what I would like to refer to as a watershed year, and not because of the band Watershed from Columbus, Ohio, but because this is the year that saw two of the most important albums of the entire decade released in the United States. Do you know what they are, people? I'm not going to actually wait for an answer. I'm going to tell you those albums are Spice by the Spice Girls and Backstreet's Back. (laughs) by the Backstreet Boys. You think I'm being facetious, but I'm not. Uh, This is the year that the worm turned. This is the year that pop 
came back with a vengeance on the American charts and MTV radio. You have it. Pop was back. It ha- we thought we had gotten rid of it, but it just went dormant. For a couple it always of years. comes back. It always comes back. I think of Carson Daly and TRL taking over pretty much. Ah, yes. That's an important factor in the story of 1997. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what albums that we think have stood the test of time that were released in 1997. I'm sure that Spice and Backstreet Spack will both be on all of our lists. Uh, In addition to that, we're going to talk about the albums that maybe haven't aged as well as we thought when they came out, Metallica's Reload. And then also albums that we discovered much later on that we might have initially missed or just ignored or didn't even know that were uh, happening at the time. We're going to talk about albums that we bought right when they came out and then kind of forgot about them after that. And then we'll talk about our favorite albums or the albums that have stood the test of time, however you want to phrase that. I want to start with where I ended. I want to talk about, guys, what albums to you have stood the test of time that have come out, that were were released in 1997? There were a lot of records when Mm -hmm. I look back. um, In terms of sheer volume of records, the run of like 1996, 97 might have had more albums released um, on major labels and, and independent labels that made some sort of an impact somewhere than possibly any year or two in the entire decade. Yeah. So I'm going to start with you, Eric. Uh, tell me an album from 1987 that has stood the test of time. Foo Fighters, The Color and the Shape. Why? Production on it is still really, really good. It's one of probably the best drum performances that Dave Grohl has done. Um, and like the songs still work. It, you know, most of that record, uh, is just a full on hard charging album. And I think it still holds up really, really well. I think it's one of the best Foo Fighter records. I would agree with you. Um, I want to mention that one of our new Patreon subscribers, Wit, who goes by the name Wit Witsbrain. I don't know if that's his legal name, but that's what he goes by. Uh, he agrees with you that that is a great up, a great straight up rock album. Anybody else have that in their, say, top five of best or, or standing the test of time albums? Uh, I did. I would have said that. This is Jeff. I would have said that had Eric not said it. <laughs> oh, we, we have, a, we have a, a stolen selection. Well, let me ask you, Jeff, then, what would be one of your or your top after the Foo Fighters for Stands the Test of Time? For me, it's actually a record that I... Um, I will confess that I hated in 1997, but um, as the years went on, I revisited it and uh, fell in love with it. And it's the um, Third Eye Blind record. Um, in fact, I was just listening to it this evening before uh, coming on to the show. And, um, you know, I think that's, you know, whatever you want to call it, pop rock or, you know, just a straight up rock record, whatever you want to call it, that it's just song after song that can just get stuck into your head all day and i just really enjoy that that record i think it um it, it's it's quintessential mid to late 90s but also withstands the test of time so I, that's my that's my vote interesting anybody else have that on this list or any of their other lists no on mine okay interesting but that's i respect an, it yeah. yeah that's an album i've come around to i still don't like the lead single semi charmed life but I like the rest of the record. Yeah. I think it's just his kind of vocal delivery on that particular song. 
right it has like that's like almost like faux rap delivery yeah that mm-hmm. uh when i first heard that i'm like oh is this like another fun loving criminals and, and that song just saturated the market so yeah. badly when it came out it was just that's why i hated it. i was like i don't i i just yeah no other song that that band could put out. I didn't want to hear it when, when they put out the singles after that. So, uh, yeah, I totally understand that. Andy, yeah. tell us one that has stood the test of time. I got to say Corner Shop and their album, When I Was Born for the Seventh Time. I, I, I listened to it the other day, and it sounds like it's coming out this year. It's It just bucked every trend, and it's got a really – it's got its own space, its own originality about it, and uh, – just an interesting thing that that could have been kind of popular in 1997. And is this the year that was the apex of the compact disc? Do we know this? Or I've got a feeling that it might be. I think it might have been 98. It's definitely of- when CDs were everywhere, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, it was doing crazy business. And by the time that, like, NSYNC had put out uh, there's uh, No Strings Attached, the Titanic soundtrack, Celine Dion, that 97, 98, that's when it was at its peak for, for at least what I remember. Jay, tell us something. Uh, I'm going to go with what I would deem, uh, the record that, um, I still, I like that. I still like now that is the most timeless and that'd be whiskey town, strangers almanac Yeah. Um, of all the ones I visited, revisited, uh, for this episode. It was the one where, you just have no idea when that was recorded. You know, it could have been recorded this year. It could have been recorded in the uh, 2000s, um, 95, or the, or the 60s. Yeah. 60s. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it really stands the test of time from a production standpoint, from a songwriting standpoint, performance. I think overall, it's just a, it's a classic. I want to mention um, a few of our Patreon subscribers, they chimed in with some picks of albums that they thought have stood the test of time. Eric Peterson mentioned Reanimation Festival by the Groovy Ghoulies. Anyone familiar with that record? Uh, on Lookout Records, I believe. Yeah. Keith Sawyer, he picked Ween's The Mollusk as his favorite that has stood up to this day. Yeah. I have, a, I have difficulty with Ween, but I know other people <laughs> like them a lot. White, um, White Pepper has some great stuff. Scott Witt, he picked, well, he picked a lot, but I'm going to go with, because I'm going to agree with him on this one, Brad's Interiors. Oh, yeah. I think that's a great record, and I think it also goes into the uh, ones that are, it's an album that gets overlooked, because even though it had Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam, Brad never got the attention that uh, Pearl Gem got, obviously. And sure. uh, I think in terms of songwriting as a, as a unit, that's clearly their best record. And it's probably one of the best records that Sean Smith was ever involved with yeah. in terms of songwriting. Um, and the album art was amazing. <laughs> one of our other new subscribers, Luke, I'm going to mess up spelling or uh, pronouncing his last name. I believe it's Karcheski. Uh He picked... As far as uh, one that um, has stood the test of time, he picked Collective Souls' Disciplined Breakdown. Hmm. Really? Yeah. It has two number one singles on it, which I think I don't remember that because <laughs> I had probably given up after <laughs> the previous album and not paid attention. So I was surprised to hear that. 
Um, but he said it holds up. It's a solid record. And so that was Luke's pick. Steven Muzinski, he picked, well, again, he picked a lot of them. One of them that I want to point out is Hum's Downward is Heavenward. I think that wow. came out in 98. Yeah, that didn't come out in 97. It didn't? Mm. I would have had that on my list. Yeah, no. Yeah. I'm going to have to... Uh, I'm gonna have let's to double check that. Sometimes they say like '97 and '98, and the you know that's always confusing. Sometimes. Yeah, I've Release. had this. You got a date? Yeah, January 27th, 1998. Oh, uh, so, so a month. Just, so the the single for coming down might have come out rele- come out yeah. before the album. Yeah, probably in like November. Sorry, Stephen. I'm gonna have to go with another pick of yours. Uh, Handsome's self-titled. Oh yeah. That's a solid pick right there. From Wit, who mentioned the Foo Fighters color and the shape, he also picked Red Cross's Show World. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great record. As an option. And then Gavin Reed, our friend from down uh, down south, from down under, he picked the helicopters paying the dues, which was also a pick of Eric Peterson. Now, Jay, I thought that that was a compilation album, but is that an actual, like, regular album? It is. Um... I think it's, a, I think it is a compilation, but they released it as a, as a you know, legitimate record. Okay. And I think they kind of rushed it, too. It, it may even come out in the in Europe first, but okay. uh, it's definitely the one that's forgotten. I think. I think everybody knows the super shitty, and then everybody knows um, uh, Grande Rock because it's the you know they sort of go for the uh, more commercial sound on that one. So let's go around and let's talk about. We've talked about the albums that have stood the test of time. But as I mentioned, a lot of albums came out around this time. We need to talk about the albums that were overlooked, that maybe even still to today have not gotten their due. What is an album, Andy, that you think is great and it still has not gotten its due that was released in 1997? That is great. Okay, I I would say this, uh, it's actually hip-hop. Company Flow, anybody familiar with them? Kind of. They were kind of like an underground, uh, kind of that Blade Runner, uh, futuristic, dark future hip-hop sound. And the guy had this album in 97 called Fun Crusher Plus with his group Company Flow. And now he's in, he's one half of Run the Jewels, and they're pretty much taking the whole industry by storm, um, selling something like 25,000 copies before the albums come out, giving it all for free, selling out the Aragon Ballroom here in Chicago. Um, they're doing huge things. So it, it's kind of interesting to see where it all started back in 97. That's his debut release. So That's LP, right? That is LP, producer, okay. rapper, uh, just super talented guy. I saw him at the Metro in 02. He had the flu and could hardly get any syllables out, but he gave it every last bit of <laughs> his energy. And it was I was like, okay, this guy's going to be around for a long time. That's a cool choice. Jeff, do you have a cool choice? I or think you, so. What um, is it? I'm actually going to pick a band uh, from Andy's uh, way in Chicago. A band called Smoking Popes put out um, their second major label record called Destination Failure in 1997. And it's just a phenomenal uh, kind of a punk, you know, pop punk, power pop type of a record. Um, Josh Cater, who's the singer of that band, has one of the 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 best and and most unique singing voices um, I've ever heard. And um, that's a record that uh, has been with me uh, since 1997, and one that I listen to regularly now, 20 years later. Great band, is it? And that's the band 
if I re- if I remember correctly, they had the single "Need You Around" on the first record. Is that where people uh, yeah. would know them from? Yeah, their that was their actual second uh, release, which was "Born to Quit." Their first for Capitol Records. Okay. Um, "Need You Around" was the big single on that record. Was also on the Clueless soundtrack, which got them some notoriety as well. Okay. Yes. I think they get I think they get logged with the one hit wonders because of that song. Right, which is um a total disservice to that band um because Born to Quit was a great record um and then they put out Destination Failure which is equally as amazing if not better than Born to Quit. Um it just didn't have, you know, as has what happened to so many bands in the nineties. It just didn't have that push that it needed to get out there and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, musically, uh, a phenomenal record. It got a lot of play out here, but in 97, if you didn't crack MTV, you know, during the daytime, you weren't, you know, going to be heard all over the country. So yeah. Eric, your choice for an overlooked, but deserved record. Okay. I have to say I got four. <laughs> Well, but give I'll, us your talk- one, and then first, and then we'll go to okay. the other three. I would definitely say that Handsome's self-titled record. Okay. Which just got a little bit of press. The band openly did not like each other. They didn't last for very long. They went on a few tours. They were a great band. I mean, it, it featured a member from Helmet, a member from Quicksand, and Jeremy Chatelaine, who would later be the bass player of uh, Jets to Brazil, was the singer um, and their drummer had played in like Murphy's Law and Cro-Mags. And basically it was like if you really liked Helmet and Quicksand, but you liked a little bit more melody. Um, yeah, that self-titled record is just absolutely amazing. And, you know, just really got barely any notice at the time. But it seems like when you find people that really like that record, they're very excited about it, too. Yeah, I have to echo Eric's comments on that. That record is flawless. I love it. Rattle off your three other ones i want to i want to hear what you got uh summer camp pure juice uh, okay. they had a buzzbin uh single with a drawer and the rest of that record is is like a really good like indie punk record and they were on maverick records madonna's label and she said infamously they're better than oasis <laughs> I, I i don't really understand why she made that comparison but um other ones, That Dog, Retreat from the Sun, probably the best record that they had done so far. Um, you know, they had ties with Weezer and, uh, you know, it was three females and a drummer, a male drummer. Just an excellent record from start to finish. And 60 Foot Dolls, the big three. Uh, technically, this record was released in the UK in 1996, but it was released in America in 97. And they sounded like... You know, they only put out one record, but they sounded like the jam meets teenage fan club. And that that's the one record I've been really enjoying for the past week, you know, just preparing for this episode. So cool. Jay, what do you got? I'm going to go with uh, I, I want to echo the uh, the handsome pick and the summer camp pick. Um, but I'm going to go with maybe the most obscure uh, horse happens twice. We've had the chance to review all, all, quite a few records from 97, and there's a good handful that I think are way underappreciated. And uh, mm-hmm. I think Horses, to me, it might stand above all the others in terms of uh, – it really – I mean, this is uh, John Speck who went on to have another band that's criminally underappreciated, the, the Fags. Um, he is an incredible songwriter. 
just hooks and hooks and hooks, very much in the cheap trick kind of power pop mold, but also has a maybe even more commercial sound sometimes. I mean, he can borderline get into like a Brian Adams kind of territory, but it's always very raw. Uh, the production is just a great room sound, great band. Um, it just never gets old, so horse happens twice. Um, and my, my runner-up would be Curb Dog on the turn. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's a good record. We have actually maybe reviewed, reviewed more records from 97 than any other year because we reviewed uh, Summer Camp, we've reviewed Handsome, we've reviewed Curb Dog. Uh, one that I'm going to mention here, Travis, Good Feeling. That was hmm. ignored when yeah. it came out. Uh, it got a little bit of publicity with All I Want to Do is Rock, but that was pretty much it. They didn't get really anything going until the second record came out. Um, yep. And then another one I want to mention is Big Rex in Loving Memory of. Yeah. Another, another record we reviewed very early on, um, like episode like eight or nine or something like that. Uh, just a great guitar record. You know, Shades of Led Zeppelin meets Soundgarden. Incredible guitar playing on that record. And I think they scored, you know, a minor hit with The Oaf, and that was about it. And uh, I think my number one, though, for uh, uh, albums that have been criminally overlooked i guess you'd say is uh catherine wheels adam and eve uh i think in their catalog this is probably one of the more overlooked of the of the albums i don't know maybe wishville is more so but i think this as a band they're just overlooked beyond uh you know obviously black metallic it still gets played on like lithium and stuff like that but uh this album to me is almost flawless from start to finish it has uh shades of pink floyd in it, which I don't really like Pink Floyd, but I like their take on Pink Floyd. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's that to me is one of the records that has definitely been overlooked. Yeah, I would echo that. I mean, the the records produced by Bob Ezrin, who produced The Wall, so um, <laughs> there's there's a lot of similarities to Pink Floyd there, which are right. a good thing. And the yeah, guy who I'll, did the artwork, I believe, on Cats and Dogs is the artist from Pink Floyd's, like, I think he did Wish You Were Here or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Strom Thurgensen, I think is his yeah. name. Yeah, he, he did most of the Catherine Wheel album covers. Yeah. With, I think with the exception of Ferment, he definitely mm-hmm. did Chrome because the album cover of Chrome is on the cover of a book that's all dedicated to his work. Yeah. Oh, cool. Nice. And and bit of trivia, he did the album cover for Blinker the Stars, August and everywhere which yeah. or august everywhere whatever however you say that um which is an actual carving of a swan in ice that they took out to the desert to take a picture of before it melted uh we <laughs> yeah. had we had J- jordan zatarazny on and he explained the, the immense cost of having that done for the, for the album cover yeah this is before yeah. computer graphics this all that shit was real <laughs> that's dreamworks money right yeah <laughs> that was dreamworks money exactly so we talked about the albums that uh, we feel have been overlooked. Let's talk about the albums that maybe have not stood the test of time or <laughs> aged as well as we would have hoped or, or liked. I made a joke about Metallica's Reload earlier. Obviously, we already covered that album on our Metallica in the 90s podcast last year. There's some stuff worth uh, revisiting on that record, not as much as maybe Load or some of the other stuff. But uh, Jeff, I want to start with you. Uh, what would be an album that you think has not aged as well as maybe a thought or hoped that you've revisited recently? I can't say this is a record that I would have hoped would have aged, but um, it has songs that still 
um, get played to this day, um, seemingly every time I go to the dentist. Um, and that's um, the Sugar Ray record from 1997, Floored. That's like such a like when you think about that year and some of the the music that was being played on on the radio ad nauseum that's a band that would immediately come to a lot of people's mind and um frankly i hated it then and i hate it now and so um i would i would kind of put that um on the list of records that have not withstood the test of time and i wish would would be buried in a, a lot far far away that was a fluke, right? Like that was like the last song on that record or something, and it would just like they had bombed like the first single and it was they, a remix, yeah, I believe. Yeah. yeah. The whole the whole thing about Sugar Ray's, like their first record, was that they were like this they were more of a hard rock band that had, you know, some kind of jokey hip hop kind of stuff. And they, they just created this song Fly for their second record. And I remember selling a lot of copies of Floored and Oh yeah. You know, that record is not filled with all these fly sound-alikes. Oh, right. So here are all these a lot these, of returns, like, little, right? <laughs> yeah, lots, lots of little kids were like, what's this? <laughs> I didn't like them for a while until I saw Mark McGrath on Rock and Roll Jeopardy just absolutely <laughs> running through everybody with his rock knowledge. So then yeah. I was like, oh, okay, the guy knows a lot about music, so you can't really hate the guy. And he just seems like a nice guy in general, too, so... Yeah, I, I just remember hearing Fly, and I was like, oh, my God, this is awful. And this was, to me, like, kinda, just for historical context, guys, it's like this was the year um, right before the major shift in the music industry happened, and that was major labels were only in the business of selling records that sold at least 500,000 copies. So they just wanted pop stars, but they weren't really sure what to do in 1997. There were these trends that were just picking up. Like ska was really huge then. So was electronic music that fused rock music, and um, it was it, it was just kind of this weird thing of like almost anything can go. And I, I remember hearing Fly on on a Sunday night, um, you know, uh, specialty show, and I was like, "This is terrible. I hate this." And that's where like alternative rock went in a completely different direction, and I went in a completely different direction. Yeah. So. You know, it's 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 just that's what that's a song that I unfortunately associate with that. Mm, we're going in different different paths, guys. It's time to break up. Yeah, <laughs> I should um, I should mention um, before we go to the next person, since Eric brought up um, 1997 and, and there being the direction of ska and, and a lot of ska records. Um, I was fully, and I'm not even like afraid or ashamed to say it. Like I was fully into ska in 1997, and there were a ton of classic records that came out in 1997 in the third wave uh, ska movement. A ton of really good records. There were some that were really bad, but there are there are a lot of good third wave ska records that came out in 1997. Well, eventually we're gonna get get around to a ska roundtable. So uh, you'll be joining us for that. I'll be excited. I might be the only one. You might. I'll help out. Hey, we did okay on the swing episode last year, and I'm, Jay and I were terrified. So yeah. I mean, swing we, was '97 too, right? Pretty uh, much. Yeah, '96 is when Swingers came out, which is why we did it last year, oh, and that I was sort it. of like the public uh, sort of uh, unveiling of uh, of swing as a popular movie. And then '97, I think, was the Gap commercial. There you and go. And then it started right. to go downhill. Uh, 
Eric, your pick mm-hmm. for an album that has not aged well. I gotta say two, and they're not uh, they're not records that I usually hear people say they haven't aged well. And that is Blink 182's Dude Ranch and the Get Up Kids Four Minute Mile. Please hear me out. I like a lot of the songs on the, on both of those records, but as far as the sound production and definitely members of the get up kids will tell you straight up it's like we were embarrassed by four minute mile for a long time i mean it was recorded in like a weekend and the band was really rough and tumble and you know they just went in there and banged it out and while it has that charm it's not i don't think you know when i want to listen to a get up kids record i want to listen to something to write home about or guilt show or on a wire much more than uh Four minute mile, and the thing about Blink One Eighty Two is that uh, you know, Dammit's on there, Josie, uh, lots of really, really great Blink One Eighty Two songs. It's just the production hasn't held up very well. And plus, I would say that the band could only go so far with Scott Rayner on drums. So when Travis Barker joined the band and they made Enema of the State, they became a much more fuller band. It's it's just in retrospect. I think uh, Dude Ranch is, isn't as strong as how I remembered it. And by the way, Mark Trombino produced that. And Mark Trombino has made some of my favorite records ever, Jimmy Eat World's Clarity. Um, but yeah, that's those are the one, those are the two that I would say like, mm, yeah, they haven't held up as well as I thought they would. Interesting. We haven't really gotten into it as a, as a reason why albums haven't held up as much in the 90s, but production can make a huge difference you know we hear that Definitely. a lot with the 80s albums where like oh the, the production is terrible or we hear albums from like 90 or 91 we're like oh this is clearly like 80s style production but when you get yeah. into like 96 97 it, it seems like the production had sort of sort of evened out become a little bit more predictable we turned a corner like in the mid 90s where you know i think advances were made where i think the majority of records made after that point sound pretty darn good Mm -hmm. um but yeah there are some that let slip through that have some problems jay what's a album that has not stood the test time for you well i think we talked about this one ad nauseum um in our live um in an episode did we do a live episode yeah we did so live secret samadhi um no we didn't do a live episode but it has come up (laughs) many times yeah so a lot of lot of anticipation around this record, a lot of hype. I really enjoy throwing copper. I like the first record. This just exposes this band as being maybe the definition of pretentious. Um, it was a good first just, single too, but the rest of the yeah. album, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Just silly. I mean, just awful cringeworthy lyrics. Um I took some water from the toilet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, and it only got worse after that. And I don't think at the time I realized it was as bad as it was. I tried to sell myself on it and it wasn't until the record after, I think where it really became clear this band had lost the, lost their way. Um, you would do that where you just spent 20 bucks on a CD and you try to talk yourself into it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It's not so bad. Yeah. And it was hard to give it another chance. Yeah. You, know, you could only carry a couple around with you if you had a discman or whatever. So it wasn't like you were, had a lot of options <laughs> either. Yeah, so right. it's like, I paid 20 bucks for this. I'm going to give it every shot I can. Plus, I've only got one other record or CD to put in. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's not good. Um, I want to throw one out there that one of our uh, Patreon subscribers, Luke, mentioned. And I, I agree with this one. It was on my list. 
Our Lady Peace is clumsy. And the mm-hmm. reason why I'm saying that is I'm a big fan of their debut, Navid. We've yeah. reviewed it. Jay and I are both big fans of that record. Going back and listening to this record again, it the thing that I picked up on was this is where I started to feel like the vocals became a problem. <laughs> uh, it's a tough one. Yeah. That's, <laughs> and I feel like the music became a little bit more formulaic. They kind of got into a four-chord kind of, you know, predictable approach as opposed to on the first record there were touches of like the cult and Billy Duffy's guitar playing and these really interesting leads and it felt like a much more adventurous record while still being a very pop rock record and this record seemed to dial it all down to radio quality songs you know three and a half four minutes you put in the chorus where exactly where you're expecting it to be and it just became a very I know I was disappointed when I heard it when it came out, um, but I, like you guys, I was like, well, it's good. It's just not as good. Uh, but now I listen right. to it, and I'm like, I can't listen to this record anymore. I like the, the follow-up, Happiness um, is a Fish, blah, blah, blah. Uh, mm-hmm. But not this, this record just does not sit well with me, unfortunately. Yeah, Tim, I totally agree with you on that. I loved the first record. I thought Navid was such a good and compelling record. And when I heard Clumsy for the first time, it really just seemed like they were trying too hard to get onto commercial radio. And I I did not like it either. I think that's a solid choice. So let me ask you guys. Wait, I got one too. Oh, okay, go ahead. (laughs) Um, This is the big one of the biggest bands in the at the uh, era. And uh, they decide to try their hand at techno, and they have the biggest massive budget you can throw money at this album all you want, but it doesn't hold up twenty years later. U 2s pop. Oh yeah, it's actually got some solid songwriting on there and some good playing and stuff like that. But it's just it's weird when the bands of the ninety or the eighties and the nineties wanted to try the newest new thing. And it ends up sounding like their most dated work of their entire catalog pretty much. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what doesn't work about that record is, and if you listen to what, what the previous record, Zuropa, right? Yeah. They tempted some similar things on that record, but they did it in a more experimental way that you, you kind of gave them a little leeway. I mean, that's a weird record in a lot of ways. Um, but like Lemon could have easily been a pop song. That's true. They but just they went whole hog. On yeah, this yeah, yeah. They just went so far. But the, I think the latter half of that record is way better than the first half. And I remember that when Disco Tech came out, and they were like, they had a dance that went along with it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. People like the Village People. Oh, what? Was, yeah, they had a dance that went along with the single. I... Huge yeah. video premiere, and it was an interesting new sound, but the whole album was just trying too hard. You know, I think there were a lot of delays in the release of the record, and like there was a whole yeah. like promotional thing that they were caught up in that like kind of sank it before it even came out. Yeah, and the reason why I like you too is they realized they made a you know kind of a stinker of an album, so they stripped everything away for the next album, all that you can't leave behind, and that album just definitely hit us it, it struck a nerve with everybody it seemed like so a u2 might be a good candidate for uh in in the 90s episode oh it it very much could come up this year <laughs> <laughs> any other ones anybody wants to throw out real quickly before we go to the next category for uh 
albums that have not stood well, the test of time? I think there's a ton of easy targets. I mean, Limp Bizkit and a lot of stuff that I didn't get into at the time, so I didn't even bother bringing it up. But um, it was definitely, I think we touched on this already, but it was certainly a transitional year. Like, this is where I think rock and roll turned the corner. So there's a lot of a lot of records here that uh, are, are a bit uh, embarrassing. <laughs> Um, there's yeah. a lot of great ones, but the ones that got the most attention, if you look at the pop charts and, and whatnot, are, are pretty uh, cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. All right, let me ask you guys then this. A- Andy, I'm going to start with you on this one. What is an album that you discovered way later that you have grown to appreciate? And it could have been last week that you discovered this record when you were researching the 19, year 1997, that you were like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know this record. This is amazing. Sure, I would have to go with, let me take a look here, Pulsars. I've, I've mentioned this before, and uh, Pulsars, I, I, I found out about the band a couple years later. They had one major label album, one chance to make it, never got a chance, n- never really struck a chord with, any, with uh, the whole you know, uh, music business. But however, this album is incredible. Every song is a keeper. Um, it sounds... Not of 1997, uh, but kind of like 1987, mixed with futuristic sounds. And uh, yeah, I wish I was a, a fan right when it came out, because that would have been nice. So, I think that came up during our Chicago episode. Yeah, they're local, and uh, now he's got, a new, uh, he's got a new little project called Victor Fiction. But uh, yeah, it's new wavy, it's got keyboards, but it's just really good, solid pop songwriting. Cool. Eric? Tell us one that you discovered much later. Stereophonics, word gets around. Um, the first time I heard anything from it, it was a slower song called Traffic. And thats I don't think that's a really good song to introduce stereophonics to people. But, you know, they, they were very popular in England. They, they showed Traffic a few times on 120 Minutes. I just kind of brushed it off to the side. A few years later... Uh, when Performance and Cocktails, their second album, was about to come out. I was working at the college uh, radio station, and we got a sampler CD that had two songs from Word Gets Around, two songs from Performance and Cocktails, and a couple of live tracks. And one of the songs on there was Local Boy in the Photograph, which is just this great, rousing sort of song, but really depressing lyrics and story. But it's just a a wonderful song. And And I, you know, this was like 99 that I realized, wow, Word Gets Around is a fantastic record start to finish. And Stereophonics have gone off on some pretty wild tangents uh, since their uh, third record, and I really lost touch with what they've done. But Word Gets Around has remained a a very, very good record that it only took me a few years to find out. Did Coldplay steal their act or no? Um, No. I think Stereophonics just... There was one point where they were having uh, Steve Gorman from the Black Crows play sure. with them, and they had very much this like laid back sort of lazy vibe, and I was like, uh, "No, thank you, guys." <laughs> well, they did two records where they kind of sounded like the Black Crows, mm. and then they did that one album that they it was like violence, sex, something, <laughs> and it had like a that song Dakota that had yeah like a drum machine in it, and like they've gone mm-hmm. off like you said on wild tangents on on records and and i discovered in the same way with you with performance and cocktails i think it was like you know at the virgin megastore in columbus picking up the enemy and yeah. them raving about performance and cocktails and i was like oh i'm gonna check this out and thinking they were kind of like oh this is like kind of a 
guttier or a gutsier uh, oasis kind of getting back to the original like def- definitely maybe kind of sound yeah. and then going backwards and discovering where it gets around yeah. from there it, it was certainly an easy album to champion around that time because a lot of people talked about how bad be here now was right um, just just a real overblown record and you know i mean like noel gallagher has all sorts of reasons why they made the record when they did but it ultimately came down to it's just too much of everything and we needed to do a remix of it so Anyway, I mean, that, that was a big year. And also Blur released their self-titled record. So it was kind of the last dying gasp of the Blur versus Oasis sort of feud that was completely made up to sell papers, sure. yeah. you know, and sell records. Um, but and you yeah, had Stereo- Urban Hymns, too, by uh, The Verge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you have records like that that were just kind of taking the place of where people were all excited about Oasis. And then a couple of years later, they're all excited about these other bands <laughs> kind of in the same mold. Uh, Mr. Takis, tell us an album that you discovered much later from 1997. Well, my list of records that fit under that category is pretty long, but I came up with four, and I'll go through them very quickly uh, in the essence of time. Um, The first is Sam I Am's You Are Freaking Me Out. Um, Yes. The record before that, which was Clumsy, is that right? No, is that right? Um, Yeah, you're right. Yeah, okay. Um, I was getting confused with Our Lady Peace there for a second. Um, (laughs) Totally different, clumsy, much better record. Um, For some reason, I didn't pick up that they had put out a record in 1997, Um, but You Are Freaking Me Out is amazing. Um, Such an amazing, underrated band um, that never got the attention they deserved and just put out record after record of amazing stuff. Um, And still tend to put out a record once every eight years or so. They put out a record that just... Uh, drops my you know uh, my chin to the to the ground and, and uh, just such a great band. The second um, is Morphine's Like Swimming, totally a band I never would have gotten into in 1997, but um, love very much in 2017. And um, just um, there's no other band like Morphine. Love that low rock sound. Love all of the different saxophone tones within uh, this record and all of their other uh, records. The next band, um, I spent a lot of time preparing for this episode on the 120 Minutes Archive website. Um, <laughs> where you can look at all of the um, videos that were played on each episode of that show, which was super important to me. There was a band on there that I had never, I must have missed those episodes or whatever, um, a band out of Sweden called Souls. Um, they put out a record called Bird, Fish, or In Between. Um, just like a really heavy rock um record great uh female vocals just a really cool record that when i was getting ready for for this show um was just one that stood out that i was really excited that i picked up along the way uh and then lastly um super grasses in it for the money um mm-hmm. oh yeah just a great there were a ton of great you know power pop i know there's the brit prop has been talked about a little bit earlier um but that that super grass record is is really great um so those are my quick four. Jason. Uh, I'm going to go back to Curb Dog on the turn. Um, I didn't know this band existed um, until we reviewed them a couple years ago. And it's like, it's it's a little metally, but it's so melodic. Uh, it's almost like if Bob Mould had a full on, like, you know, hard rock metal band, what they would sound like. So it's got that same kind of production, the same kind of 
vocals almost and melody, but it's, you know, got some great riffs and um, at times it's kind of, it sounds a little bit like the handsome record, um, in that, in that way too. So yeah, okay. curb dog on the turn. That's a great record. So for my pick, there's a little backstory to how I ended up discovering this record. Um, when after Jay and I were done with the bit with the band and we wanted to do a podcast, we needed to come up with a title and so I was looking through my MP3 <laughs> collection, and I was like, I haven't really spent enough time with Slater Kinney. I need to like actually listen to them more. I have downloaded these MP3s, and I spent time with the album Dig Me Out, and I was like, oh, well, this is perfect. Like, not only does the like this kind of sums up what we want to do as a you know discover bands that we didn't discover the first time around, but Dig Me Out kind of sounds like digging out your old records so i would pick slater kinney's dig me out because i didn't discover it until about six years ago uh or seven years ago i guess it was just a ferocious record guitar wise and uh just unlike anything uh, of its time still sounds edgy and and um confrontational it's just a really cool record um the other one i wanted to mention was uh i've been getting into (laughs) I, i mentioned this in a previous podcast a lot of like sort of ambient like Brian Eno type stuff and uh, I really enjoy his record The Drop from 1997 which as much as I love listening to Brian Eno stuff I have a hard time distinguishing what I'm listening to at any one point because it all kind of sounds uh similar but I I enjoy that sort of calming uh yeah his new album is one track at 55 minutes yeah it's great I couldn't separate it from another thing that he released 10 years ago but it when I put it on, I'm like, yep, this sounds like Brian Eno. Sounds good to nice. me. So my album was that people threw out that uh, I want to mention. Um, Gavin Reed mentioned The Hives, Barely Legal album came out in 1997 that yeah. he did not discover. Wit, Wit Wit's Brain mentioned Bob Goblin's The 12-Point Master Plan, which uh, we reviewed, and I believe, Jay, you and I both enjoyed a lot of that uh, record. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a good record. Yeah, that's a good record. Yeah, um, Dallas Band. And then uh, Keith Sawyer mentioned the old 97's Too Far to Care. Another Dallas band. That he uh, discovered much later. For our next category, we need to talk about albums that we bought immediately when they came out in 1997. We were super psyched to buy this record and then went, oh, shit, this is awful. (laughs) I'm going to give an example Mm. of of an album. I had heard how awesome the Stone Roses were. And then I, I had gotten, I think, the compilation that had come out. So it had, like, all the best stuff, which was, like, mostly the first record and then a couple songs <laughs> off the second record. Just the first but, record. Yeah. yeah, it was basically the first record. And then I, like, had a couple, maybe, like, a, sin- a single that wasn't on the record. That was about it. So when it was, uh, when John Squire from Stone Roses was going to be releasing an album <laughs> under the seahorses, yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm totally getting this record. Love is the law. Yeah, it doesn't live up to <laughs> to the Stone Roses. Um, that's about the only song that's I think notable on that record, um, which I think is the the law of diminishing returns. When one guy from a band you like puts out a record years later, uh, it's probably not going to stack up. The other one I wanted to mention was Jane's Addiction's Kettle Whistle, which uh, <laughs> the legend had grown so massive by that point with those three records that you're like, oh, well, these outtakes and this new song with Flea is going to be awesome. And then... Hard Charger? Yeah. 
Well, no, that it was So What was one of the songs. And then uh, there was another one that I can't remember. But then they like, one of those songs was like a re recorded song from 1987, anyways. They just had Fleet yeah. play the bass instead of uh, Mr. Eric Perkins, Avery. Uh, or Avery, yeah. Um, so those would be a couple of my picks. Mr. Grubbs, what would be a pick that you were super psyched to buy at the time and then went, oh no? Uh, <laughs> it would have to be, and this is just one, the only album, and this was the only time in that I ever bought a CD. Oh, I'm sorry. should backtrack. I'm sorry. It was the first time I ever bought a CD, and I just had this sinking feeling the more I listened to it, and that was Radish's Restraining Bolt. Um, they were this band that was fronted by, I think, a then 15-year-old Ben Queller. Mm-hmm. They got signed yep. to Mercury Records for $1 million. They were from Greenville, which is about an hour east of Dallas. So it's like, oh, cool, hometown pride, and they played on Conan, and their their lead single was just sounded fantastic. But then I got the CD, and it was like, oh, the song was slowed down to make it all fit with the click track, and the lyrics on it are pretty embarrassingly bad. Uh, it sounds like a 15-year-old <laughs> wrote them. Um, but the, the upswing to that is that uh, Ben Queller has gone on to have an amazing solo career, uh, and I'm, I'm sure he probably is never going to play those radish songs live again but uh you know but that was that was the only time in 1997 i was like oh uh yeah i made a made a bad decision here uh andy what was your pick for the immediate uh bargain bin here's a disappointing one i heard uh matt penfield uh who is actually ailing right now so i wish him uh, all the best He's having some issues, health issues. Um, Matt Pinfield was describing this band as uh, Jim Morrison fronting Nirvana. And I was like, okay, I'll buy it. 1899 uh, later, I, uh, I've i got the new Days of the New album, oh. the self-titled Days of the New <laughs> album. And uh, it's kind of acoustic, warmed over, grunge, vile, uh, and it's just... <laughs> It was I was maybe a one player, a two play. Sure, touch, peel, and stand. It's got a decent riff. It's got a decent sound to it, but not gonna hold over a, a full album's worth. And then they even released another one two years later, and I saw it, and I was like, nope, not gonna make that mistake twice. Even though it was called Days of the New. Again, the second album was just still self-titled too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think they then called it Days of the New Two, something and, like uh, that. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you remember the downtown? Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not downtown, just, the downtown. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear But very God. promising band that uh, really couldn't, uh, I think it was more of a gimmick sound than a true band sound. That was a band that to me sounded like they listened to Alice in Chains' Jar of Flies for like yeah. 15 <laughs> it's years like, hey, we should row. make a whole band like this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what if, <laughs> what if Alice in Chains could only do acoustic records? Uh, <laughs> let's make a band like that. Yeah. This was around that time that you had these young bands that, uh, you know, were, were claimed to be, I mean, they were signed to be kind of like the younger version of like Nirvana. Like, even though Silverchair didn't like Nirvana's music, they were pegged to be the next Nirvana. <laughs> Um, so it was, it was stuff like that that was going on. And so like you started to see that, 
okay, Allison Chains and Pearl Jam don't really want to play by major label games. So let's find bands that are willing to. And that's where you got Days of the New. That's <laughs> also where you got um, Matchbox 20. You know, it's just that, hey, we really like that whole kind of sound. <laughs> but, you know, like, hey, can God you smack. like, you know, you're yeah. seven, very three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to be cumbersome, but. Oh, <laughs> oh, solid. All right. Solid work. Yeah. Jeff, Heck. your pick. So for mine, it wasn't an immediate hatred um, by the CD and immediately regret it. But it was one of those where I listened to this record and I knew that a band that I loved was about to make a significant right-hand turn, which they did with the following record. Um, but this is ever clear so much for the afterglow. Um, <laughs> I loved um, the first two records, World of Noise and then Sparkle and Fade. Just yeah. they were, in fact, one of my favorite bands at the time. Um, great band. Yeah. Just such a, you know, those two records are really great. And I like so much for the Afterglow. I listened to it this weekend, matter of fact, and I enjoyed it. But I just remember listening to it and just kind of seeing the writing on the wall that, you know, this band was going to go down a path that, that uh, they weren't going to be taking me along with them, so to speak. And, and uh, so that was, that was a sad, that was a sad moment. So that's my choice. They were a band that succumbed to their biggest hit. You know, it was all like, we want more Santa Monica. So yeah. that's why you notice that everything to everyone has a similar kind of feel. And I still Father really, mine. yeah. And I still really like uh, Sparkle and Fade was one of my favorite records Classic. throughout high school. Uh, so much for the Afterglow. Pretty good. But then by the time that they got to the double record, then it started to become what way more of Art Alexakis with a couple of other guys. And that's how the band has been ever since then. He's gone through so many lineup changes, even did a record where he did like acoustic covers of recording. E yeah. Everclear songs. And it's just like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They've become like sponge where like the album covers now look like bad local bands. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, Jay, what's your pick for an album that you discarded quickly in 1997? Well, I was doing a lot of cutout bin diving at this time. So uh, in college, you know, money's tight. So uh, one that comes to mind was I got into – it might have been because of the wigs. I started getting – trying to find like soul that I would be into, especially like new. So like Maxwell came out that year and I, I, I dug that single. But then I started exploring like, well, maybe there's some other bands like that. And I got some band called – the brand new heavies <laughs> and immediately was like, no, this is not my thing. I put the CD in and was like, okay, this will never get played again. <laughs> Yank that one out. Or Jamiroquai um, that year, right? Yeah, there was that yeah. too. But do, don't you still have the brand new heavy CD? I'd never get rid of any CDs now, but I've just, you know, you're a smart man, <laughs> file it and never opened it again until hey, actually, Sorry, but Jamiroquai was the first time where I had to go walk over to the soul section of the CD store. It was weird. Because I was kept looking at the J's. I'm not finding it. I'm like, where's Jamiroquai? And he's like, come yeah. over here. Follow me. I'll show you. <laughs> You're like, ooh, I've never been back here. Wow, okay. Yeah, I, I, I get, yeah. I did the same thing. There were a lot of bands where because another band referenced them or they were, or they referenced a band like, Hey, we're big fans of this band. You go, okay, well, I guess I'll go check them out. And you're like, what, what? You don't sound anything like that band. <laughs> yeah. So to, I want to wrap up on this since we're about to hit the hour mark here. 
I know we talked about the albums that we thought have stood the test of time. Give me your favorite album of 1997, and if it's also the album that was your stood the test of time, uh, pick your second one. So you don't have to repeat the same thing over and over again. Andy, I'm start with you. What is your if you you're gonna pick one album that's gonna survive 1997? What, what's that album that you love the most? I would go with OK Computer, but I'm gonna do something different. The band that opened for them on their '97 tour, Spiritualized, with "Ladies and Gentlemen, We Are Floating in Space." Uh, uh, front to back, classic. There's no wasted moments in the whole thing. There's orchestras, there's choirs, it, but it doesn't seem overblown. Um, there's talk of addiction. There's talk of love. It covers the whole gamut, and it's uh, still Jason Pierce's. I mean, he was in Spaceman 3 and everything, but this is still his crowning achievement. He knows it, and uh, it's an amazing thing to hear that one live. Great pick. That, I agree with you, is an album that will be around forever. And also, I had a friend that would always uh, travel the world. He went to uh, South Africa, and he said that the version that he got came in a pill container where you had to cut the like the tin foil off of the CD to get to the CD. So I thought that was a cool <laughs> thing. I bet that's worth a lot of money if you had that sealed still. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Grubbs, tell me your ultimate album from 1997. Okay, this one beat out OK Computer, Bright in the Corners by Pavement, Nimrod by Green Day, and The Promised Rings, Nothing Feels Good, all titanic records for me but this one is one of my all-time favorite records and that is whatever and ever amen by ben folds five cool bold yeah, choice that, tell me why um because it was like at at the time you didn't hear a record that i mean it was like a rock record played on jazz instrumentation recorded like a jazz record and there's happiness there's sadness in it there's really heavy stuff brick is about getting an abortion um, and like songs like evaporated, missing the war, just, these are all things that I, you know, the, that feeling of like moving on with your life. Cause this 1997 was the year that I graduated high school. This is the time that I associate, you know, like things that I dealt with every single day in high school. By the time I was in college, the following, uh, fall, it, it, it was different. And so it was just a record I kept listening to and, uh, one angry dwarf and, you know, sure. that, uh, uh fair uh just start to finish fantastic record and when they put out the reissue of it a number of years ago all the bonus tracks are excellent on there so yeah that that's the one record that has held up very well for me and just as a side note i i met ben folds a few years ago and i just was totally tongue-tied and i just said you know been a fan since 1997 this has been a long time coming so it was a great show i mean it normally like i do not get tongue-tied but you know, when this guy has like essentially lived in my car stereo uh, since then, especially that record, as well as the self-titled and unauthorized biography of Reinhold Mesner. Um, and then later with certain other records. I mean, it was just like it was such a profound moment, but it started in 1997 with whatever and ever. Amen. Excellent. Very cool. Uh, Jeffrey, I am going to say that I think the best record in 1997 someone else had said it earlier in the show is um, Foo Fighters of Color and the Shape um, I think it's um, I think it's also the best Foo Fighters record um, it's my favorite um, but uh, I just think that that 
in in that era and in current era in rock and you know rock music, I think Foo Fighters is one of the last remaining rock bands to still be out there playing uh, music. And I think The Color and The Shape is their best record and was the best record um, in 1997. Um, and I would also give another shout out to that Smoking Pope's record because it's so important to me personally. Mr. Jason, what, did, what you say? 1997. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with the record that was probably my favorite record at the time and and for nostalgic reasons, and also I just think it's 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 really good. Is that you know, Catherine Wheel, Adam and Eve? It's cinematic, and that's something that I think I I picked up on a little bit at the time. But now that I've learned more about Bob Ezrin and his work, and that's really what he brought to the record. It's almost like a concept record in some ways. Um, there's a lot of interludes and mm-hmm. sort of these passages that are noise or sounds, and, and the songs just kind of evolve one to the next. Um, on, in hindsight, I, I liked uh, some of the earlier stuff better, but this might be them at their best. So it's them bringing their kind of shoegaze, matured sound, uh, turning down a little bit. They're not as raucous, but um, putting it through sort of a 70s lens, I guess, in terms of you know coming to terms with their influences. And um, at, the, at the helm is a really talented, uh, amazing producer, so... Catherine Wheel, Adam and Eve. Excellent choice because I mentioned it previously, so I obviously agree with you. I'm going to go with the one that apparently everyone is afraid to say, which is it's Radiohead's OK Computer People. Come on. <laughs> That's clearly the best record that came out here. No, I, I respect all of your opinions. I do. Um, but OK to me, Computer OK Computer is kind of like this demarcation line for Radiohead fans, I've found. Oh, it's yeah. like it's kind of the last like really accessible record. I mean, I, I think we all just kind of take it for granted. It is one of the best records of all time. And right. it was released in 97, you know. It's but, sort of uh, like uh, when you have that like quarterback who keeps taking teams to the Super Bowl and yet he doesn't win the MVP. Uh, the people are just like, well, you know, they got a good team around him. It's like, no, <laughs> if he wasn't there, it wouldn't matter. No, they wouldn't get it done. Right. Okay, Talking computer. About- are you talking about Rex Grossman? Yeah, I'm talking about, about Rex Grossman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking CJ. about Cutler. That's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, no, I, OK Computer to me, it's it's cutting edge. It's paranoid. It's Android. It'd be a Android. You served me. You set me up. It's futuristic. It sounds so dark. And something about that record, the way it connects the bends to Kid A... Um, it's, a, it's a feat that I don't think any other band has pulled off in a transition of sound uh, in their career. Um, I just think it's a monumental record from start to finish. It's hard because I love Adam and Eve. I mentioned Brad's Interiors. Color and Shape is a fantastic record. Um, and we'll get into this. We're going to talk a little bit in our Patreon bonus section after this. But there are a bunch of records that we didn't talk about that I want to bring up. And, we'll and real quick, there. I feel like uh, OK Computer foreshadowed uh, how we are in 2017, where whenever we go out anywhere, everybody's down looking at their mobile device. I think that was something that they kind of tapped into in 1997 with this album full of uh, people being separated by technology a little bit. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. We need to thank our Patreon people who left feedback on this episode. Gavin, Eric, Luke, Wit, Kevin... Kevin Keith. I'm gonna keep calling Keith or Kevin. It's Keith Scott, 
and Steven. Now, this is going to be confusing because there's a Scott Wit and then there's a Wit Wit Brain. Um, so that's going to get confusing. Um, and of course, we need to thank our three guests on this episode Eric, Jeff, and Andy. Like I said, we're going to do a little bonus stuff just after this for a couple minutes. You can join us at Patreon to hear that over at patreon.com forward slash dig me out. Um, you can find Eric over at themeparkexperience.blogspot.com for mm-hmm. the various things that you write at and your podcast. Do you know who you are? You can find mm-hmm. Jeff over at rocketfuelpodcast.com and Andy at andydare.com. And you can find these gentlemen on the various social media outlets such as Twitter. Um, thanks, guys, for, for doing this. And that's it. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com. Wave to the camp.